Amen. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke. Our sermon text this morning is Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. I'll give you a moment to turn there. We'll read it together and then pray. Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through the end of the chapter. Luke 7, verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet And anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Lord Jesus, as we open your word and consider this story today, I ask that you would move our hearts to to really comprehend the realities of grace, the seriousness of sin, the beauty of the forgiveness that you offer, And the depth of the love that that is rightly expressed to you, the kind of love that honors you for your work in our lives. Lord, we are helpless to change our own hearts, but we ask that you would cause within us conviction, humility, faith, love, and a greater joy in all that you've given us in the gospel. We ask for your help to this end. In your name, amen. Well, I didn't really plan this out this way. But I think it's great timing that this text, this story, is the passage of Scripture we just so happen to be in as we go through the Gospel of Luke, the week after Easter. Easter is a time where we have this intense focus. Many Christians have this intense focus on what it is that Jesus did for us, his sacrifice for our sin, the suffering that he endured on the cross as he shed his blood 
to purchase our salvation. We remember not only his death and his sacrifice, but also his glorious life, his resurrection, the victory over the devil and over death and over sin, this victory that he shares with us, this victory he gives to us by grace through faith. So we celebrate all of that, and we sort of have a a hyper-focus on that through Holy Week and Easter. The question is, are you over Easter already? Has, Has all of that sort of worn off? Has the magnitude of God's grace sort of lost its effect on you? To be honest, last week might have been even a little bit raw as we, as we think deeply and extensively about what Christ has done, about our sin, about the cost for our forgiveness. It can almost be too much to handle sometimes. And it's sort of easy for us to, to let that reality, the, the depth of what Christ has done for us, to let that sort of drift to the back of our minds as we go back to work, go back to school, figure out how to pay the bills, try to cut the grass, all of the little things of life. Well, in Luke chapter 7, we find this striking story. And this story is one of the most famous scenes in the gospel of Luke. And the point of this story is is self-evident, that great grace from Jesus produces great love for Jesus. You can sum up this whole story with that one phrase, that the great grace of Jesus, what he gives us, what he does for us, produces a great response of love for Jesus. The Apostle John would later write, we love him, why? Because he first loved us. And here in this story, around a dinner table in Galilee, we see that truth fleshed out, lived out right before us. And as we consider the two characters that are in the spotlight, as we look at Simon, this Pharisee who's hosting the dinner, as we look at this unnamed woman, this sinful woman, it's kind of like looking into a mirror. We start to see bits and pieces of our own reflection in the story. And what I want to do this morning is, first of all, walk through this narrative, sort of tell the story, and then at the end, I'd like to draw out several implications for us, implications, truths that ought to shape how we live, all right? So the, the setting for this story is found in verse 36. It's a meal in the house of the Pharisee. One of the Pharisees asked him, asked Jesus, to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. The, the dinner table, dinner parties even, are a common scene in Luke's gospel, and this, in that day and age, would have been a very important social event, Invitations would have been sent, and, and this meal would often be held in the courtyard of someone's home who had room, an open courtyard, and, and when a rabbi was in town like Jesus, someone who is notable, someone that everybody in town would have been interested to hear what they had to say, it was expected and allowed that the public was actually able to come and go. They may not have had a seat at the table, but they could stand around the outside of the courtyard and listen in to the important Uh, discussions and and conversations that were going to be had between the host and his guests of honor. And the host for this party is a Pharisee. He's a man who belongs to that party of the Jews that was highly dedicated to, to these religious traditions that had grown up and been built around God's law. The Pharisee movement was a holiness movement. It was a highly religious sect. And while some of the Pharisees, as we discover, were genuinely interested in Jesus. Like in John chapter 3, we meet Nicodemus, 
He has questions for Jesus. He's trying to figure all this out. We find Joseph of Arimathea, who, who's a very influential Pharisee. He belongs to the Sanhedrin. We see that, that he helps to bury Jesus. He has sympathies towards Jesus. So not all Pharisees are, are the villains, but most of them were hostile towards Jesus. In fact, if you look just up the page in verse 30, Luke says that the Pharisees and the lawyers, they rejected the purpose of God for themselves when they rejected the baptism of John. They rejected John. They rejected Jesus. And in doing so, we're rejecting the purpose of God. They are spiritually hostile towards Christ and his person and his message. But despite this general hostility, despite the fact that the Pharisees were typically the ones uh, scheming to try to trap Jesus and, and condemn him in some way, Jesus accepts this invitation. He shows no partiality. In Luke chapter 7, we find Jesus engaging with a centurion, healing a widow's son, speaking to a mixed crowd, and having dinner with a Pharisee. His ministry is broad. It points in every direction. So this is the setting, which is not that uncommon. It's a little interesting that Jesus is dining with a Pharisee. But where things get somewhat startling is in verse 37, because there's this spectacle. And Luke points it out. He says, and behold... And that's not, just a style, that's not just for style points. That's not just a literary um, you know, flourish. He's trying to call our attention to something. He says, guys, get this. Look at this. You won't believe what happened next. Jesus is having dinner in the home of this Pharisee. And look at what happens. A woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. She comes, invites herself to this dinner party. And this woman is the polar opposite of the host, of the Pharisee. She's notorious for her sinful lifestyle. She has a reputation in that town. But we see that this woman takes great initiative. She's the subject of all of these verbs that Luke gives us in rapid succession, these eight different verbs. She learned that he was reclining at the table, brought an alabaster flask, stands behind Jesus. She's weeping. She wets his feet with her tears, wipes his feet with her hair, kisses his feet, and anoints his feet with ointment. So she's doing a lot. There is a lot that's going on here as she enters into the scene, and it gets everyone's attention. Luke says, behold, look at this. This is unusual, and it's unusual for a number of reasons. First of all, for a person with her reputation to come onto Simon's property, that would have been shocking. Again, he's a Pharisee who's committed to this radical lifestyle of, of holiness and keeping the law, and she's the total opposite. She's someone who made a lifestyle out of breaking God's law. Now, we're not actually told what the exact nature of her sin was. Some people speculate that perhaps she was a prostitute, but we really don't know. It's also possible that she was somehow in cooperation with the Romans, the occupying uh, powers of the day, kind of like the tax collectors were. That would get you labeled a sinner pretty fast. Or it's maybe possible that she had simply abandoned the, the rituals of the Jewish religion and the custom. She would basically become secular and disregarded God's law and lived as she chose we really don't know. All we know is that she had a reputation in that town for being a sinner. Not a sinner in the sense that everybody sins. A sinner in the sense that she was notorious for her actions of breaking God's law. Yet she hears about Jesus and immediately seeks him out. That is shocking. 
In addition, her weeping makes quite the scene. The way Luke describes it, this is not a quiet little tear trickling out of the corner of her eye. She is showering Jesus' feet as she sobs and weeps. And to rightly visualize what Luke is describing, you sort of have to understand their setup. They would have this low-lying table uh, that was set in the middle, and they would have cushions and pillows that surrounded this low-lying table. And then the guests would recline. They would lay down and sort of prop themselves up on their left elbow and eat with their right hand. And so their head would be closest to the table. All the heads are in the center. And then their legs and their feet would sort of stick out behind them like spokes coming out of a wheel. So Jesus' feet would have been furthest from the table. And the reason that her tears are falling on his feet is she has come immediately to where Jesus is, gotten as close as she can. And so her tears fall upon his feet. That's as close as she could get without starting to step on people as she tries to draw near to Jesus. But she's not just crying over his feet. She starts to use her hair to wipe them off. And this would have been shocking as well. It was highly unusual for women in that day to, to let down their hair in public. Married women would have kept their hair covered in public. That was a sign of modesty and, and honor and respect for their husbands. Unmarried women, younger girls, didn't have to necessarily cover their hair. But to have your hair down and to have it loose and unbound, that was often a sign of grief, a sign of mourning. You did that at a funeral. You did that when there's a time of deep anguish and crisis, which fits the picture of this woman weeping and, and showering Jesus' feet with her tears. The other unusual thing was that she was touching a man in public. That was highly irregular. That would have raised eyebrows as well. And even more, for her to, to wipe his feet would have been an act of extreme humility. Again, we have to remember that their streets were different than our streets. Our streets usually have cars, trucks. Their streets had donkeys and horses and oxen and stray dogs and goats and sheep. And they didn't have sewer systems like we had. So yes, it was a dusty dirt road, but it wasn't the clean dirt that's in your backyard. It was a different kind of dirt. And to have that dirt caking your feet after walking through the street all day would have posed um, something that was not just unsightly, it would have been unsanitary. So it was common for people to provide water so that you could wash your feet when you entered someone's house. But this was such a, a kind of dirty and demeaning task that it was, it was actually custom that no Jewish slave could be made to wash someone's feet. It was considered too demeaning. You could make a Gentile servant wash someone's feet, but no Jew could be forced to wash another Jew's feet. But this woman voluntarily washes Jesus' feet, and she uses her hair to do it. This would have gotten everyone's attention in the room. And then there's the anointing. If her weeping and wiping his feet didn't draw attention, the smell of the ointment would have turned everyone's heads. This ointment would have been expensive. Perhaps this was something that she had earned through her trade. Perhaps it was inherited from her family. We don't know. All we know is that she uses this precious ointment not on Jesus' head, not on his clothes, where it would have remained and, and stayed with him. She uses it on his feet, the dirtiest part of him, and the place where it would have most quickly worn off. It was an extravagant display of honor for Jesus. This scene actually has a lot of similarities to another story in the Gospels. In fact, Matthew and Mark and John all describe something very similar during the final week of Jesus' life, 
where Mary from Bethany, Mary is the sister of Martha and Lazarus, who was raised from the dead. Mary came and broke an alabaster flask and anointed Jesus' head with pure nard, this precious substance. And, and it's good to point out that while these circumstances are similar, they're not the same event. They're not the same occasion. That story takes place in Bethany, which is a small town right outside of Jerusalem, which is further south. This story is in the region of Galilee up north. That story takes place during the last week of Jesus' life. It's right before his death. This story takes place much earlier in Jesus' ministry, when he's still on friendly terms with the Pharisees. He's still having dinner with one. Uh, that story names the woman who comes as Mary, the resident of Bethany. She was a known follower of Jesus, one of his close friends. There's a deep personal relationship there. But this story leaves the woman unnamed, and it says that she's a resident of this town, and it appears that Jesus had no prior relationship with her. She's a stranger. In addition, the, the, the tears in these scenes seem different because Mary's grief at Bethany, she's weeping because she knows that Jesus is about to be killed. Jesus said that she's actually anointing him for his burial. She's weeping because she's about to lose a dear friend. This woman's grief appears to be rooted in her understanding of her own sin and her, her guilt and her shame over her previous life. In addition, that story focuses on the stingy disapproval of the disciples. Do you remember that they grumbled to themselves and, and Judas said this could have been sold and that money could have been given to the poor and he really wanted to skim some money off the top. That's why he was concerned. But in this story, the author Luke here focuses not on the disciples' reaction, but on the reaction of the host, on Simon, this Pharisee. And while it is true that the hosts of both these meals were named Simon, Simon was a common name. And the story in Bethany says it's at the house of Simon the leper, while this is Simon the Pharisee. So because Simon's such a common name, they would often tag something on to point out which Simon it was. And this, these appear to be different men named Simon. So there are some similarities, but there's also differences. What Luke describes here seems to be an earlier occasion uh, than what's described in the other Gospels. So that's more informational for you, but it, it's important that we read these Gospels and, and allow these different stories to bring out different truths and different perspectives on what's going on so that we can learn from them. So what is it that Luke draws our attention to? Well, Luke draws our attention not just to what this woman did, but especially to what followed. Luke wants us to see how people reacted to this and then what Jesus said about it. So look at Simon's reaction in verse 39. Luke tells us what's running through the mind of the host. It says, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Amazingly, this man's response is not critical of the woman. His first reaction is to be critical of Jesus. The fact that Jesus is allowing this to happen, here's how his logic works. The fact that Jesus is letting her do this it certainly must mean that he doesn't know who she is. He must not realize who this woman is, what her past is like, the kinds of things that she has done in our town. Jesus must not know. And if he doesn't know that, then he must not really be a prophet. He must not have any sort of spiritual insight. To him, the fact that Jesus lets her do this is discrediting him. 
I think this Pharisee is trying to figure out who Jesus is. That's why he invited him over. He wanted to hear from Jesus. He wanted to see Jesus up close and personal. And he goes, I see. You really must not be a prophet. He reacts with a critical eye towards Jesus. So that's how he responds to this situation. But look how Jesus responds in verse 40. And answering, Jesus answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. I love how Luke describes that Jesus answers this man's unspoken objections. He hasn't even said anything out loud. But he has questions. He has criticisms. And Jesus answers it. What an ironic twist that Simon thought that Jesus had no idea what's going on in this woman's life. But Jesus actually knows what's going on in his head. He truly does have spiritual insight. He is a prophet and more than a prophet. His conclusion about Jesus couldn't have been more wrong. Jesus addresses him by name. He says, Simon, and he wants his attention. And I think he wants everyone else's attention too. Remember, there's other guests at the table. There's other people probably lining the the wall of the courtyard. There's other people standing near and listening in. Everybody's been looking at this woman, but now they're all staring at Jesus and Simon. And Jesus is setting up the chessboard. He's getting everything situated. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. This is an invitation to Simon. It's an invitation to listen. It's an invitation to reason and to consider what Jesus is about to say, to listen to his teaching. And Simon accepts the invitation. He says, say it, teacher. Simon wants to hear him out. That's why he invited him to dinner in the first place. So Jesus proceeds to lay out a simple parable. It's a story that will illustrate an important truth. And we find that story in verse 41 and 42. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. This is the simple story. There's three characters here. A lender, and then there's two debtors. And each of these debtors has different amounts of debt. One 500 denarii and one 50. Now, a denarii was a day's wage for a laborer. So if you went out today, I don't know what you would make as a a day laborer. Maybe you make... 15 bucks an hour, 12 bucks an hour, 17 bucks an hour. I don't know. Some of you guys who own a small business, you can tell me what the going hourly rate is today for manual labor. But if we can roughly do the math, one of these men owed about two months' worth of wages. Think about how much you make in two months. It's not a small amount. That's a good chunk of change. But the other, who owed 500 denarii, that's about two years' worth of wages. That's a much bigger debt. And neither of these men could pay. While their debts are different, their inability, their situation is actually the same. Neither of them has any way to pay back the loan. So what does the lender do? Well, Jesus says he does something shocking, something that is unexpected, something almost unheard of. Verse 42 says that he canceled the debt of both. He canceled their debt. He says, you don't owe me anything. You don't have to pay me back. I'm not going to call the collections agency. I'm not going to have you thrown in prison. I'm not going to take you on as a slave until you pay everything back. He cancels the debt. Now, the word cancel here that the ESV uses, it might feel a little bit cold and mathematical, but the word in the Greek language is anything but that. Actually, the word here is the verbal form of the same word that, that we translate as grace. The word charis, grace, it's charizomai here. 
The NIV translates it that he forgave the debt of both. The New American Standard says he graciously forgave. Although the debtors did not deserve it, although they had no way to earn it, the lender simply chose to be gracious to them and to release them from their debt. Jesus, as he's telling the story, has now baited the hook. And now he's going to see if Simon will bite. He asks the obvious question. Now, the end of verse 42. Which of them will love him more? Simon answers somewhat cautiously, verse 43. says, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. It's like, this isn't a trick question, right? And I think I see where you're going with this. He can see where this is going. And Jesus affirms his answer. He says, you've judged rightly. Yes, Simon, you're picking up what I'm laying down. Yes, you know exactly where this is going. You're on the right track. Obviously, the one that's been forgiven the greater debt will feel a much deeper sense of gratitude and appreciation and will have a stronger sense of love and affection for this man that just forgave him for more than two years' worth of earnings. Then Jesus takes the simple conclusion from this imaginary story. He says, now let me connect the dots to our situation here. Here's the point. The great love that this woman has shown him, because she'd been forgiven so much, contrasts starkly with Simon's lack of love for Jesus. He points this out. Verse 44, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. He says, look at the contrast. These two things are not alike. One of these characters has shown a far greater sense of love for Jesus. Yes, Simon had invited Jesus to the dinner, But Jesus had not been honored. He had not been welcomed or served anything like what this woman did. She's not the host, but her love for Jesus has outshined the hospitality of Simon in every way. And the question is why? Why does Simon do so little to honor Jesus? And why does this woman do so much? Jesus drives home the point in verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Her actions were a display of great love for Jesus. Jesus says, yes, she is a sinner. In fact, her sins are many. He doesn't undersell that. He says, but she has been forgiven. And that forgiveness, the the distance between the magnitude of her debt and and the, the power of the grace that God has shown her to cancel that debt, that's what explains her behavior. She is overwhelmed with love for Jesus because she knows how much she has been forgiven. Again, the New American Standard and the NIV, I think, are a little bit more clear here. Um, because the verb for forgiven, when Jesus says, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, this verb is actually in the past tense. It has the idea of an action that has been brought to completion, that her sins, which are many, they have been forgiven. Once and for all, they are dealt with. They are in the past, and she owes nothing to God in terms of of paying off that debt. 
And this is important that we bring out this detail. Because you might wrongly read this story. You might be tempted to wrongly interpret from this scene that, that this story teaches that Jesus forgave her sins because of how much she wept. That he forgave her sins because she anointed him with ointment. That he forgave her sins because of the great humility that, that she showed. But that's not the case. Jesus' words reveal that this forgiveness is not the result of her extravagant love. No, this forgiveness is the cause of her extravagant love. She loved him not in order to be forgiven. She loved him because she already had been. Perhaps this woman had heard what Jesus had said back in chapter 5, verse 32, when Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This woman at some point had come to realize that Jesus came for people like her, that his grace extended to sinners like her, people who were unrighteous like her. Perhaps she had heard his teaching and been in the crowd when Jesus said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who weep now, because you will laugh. Chapter 6, that's verses uh, 20 and 21. Perhaps those words of Jesus, that preaching of good news, that invitation to repentance, that offer of forgiveness and entrance into the kingdom of God, those words had pierced her heart and she had believed. She had believed the good news that Jesus was traveling around preaching. And Jesus presents this as the explanation to Simon. He refutes his critical conclusion. He says, no, it's not that I'm not a prophet and I don't know who she is. That's, that's not why this is a good thing. He says, no, this is a better explanation. This woman loves much because she has been forgiven much. And this explanation is an invitation to Simon to wrestle with this reality for himself. If this woman does so much to, to serve and love Jesus, why does Simon not have that kind of love for Jesus? That's a convicting question. Why has he done so little to serve and honor and, and adore Jesus Christ? He leaves Simon to sit with this reality, but he turns to the woman in verse 48. He turns and says to her, your sins are forgiven. I think this is important to recognize what Jesus is doing and what he's not doing. At no point does Jesus minimize her sins. He never does that. At no point does Jesus redefine them. You know, like we like to have all these euphemisms for our sins. We call lying stretching the truth. We call adultery an affair. We call verbal abuse just, yeah, we shout sometimes. Jesus doesn't do that. He says her sins their sins. And he not only calls them sins, he says they are many. He acknowledges this woman has done far more to violate and break God's law than most other people in this town. He doesn't try to flatten it out and say, yeah, well, everybody's a sinner and all sin is the same. He says, no, her sins are many. 
But he speaks a word of assurance to her. He speaks this word of comfort. He reminds her that her debt has been canceled. The comfort that she needs is not to have her sin minimized. It's not to have her sin compared to everyone else's. She needs to have her sin forgiven. She needs to have her debt canceled. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. They have been, in the past perfect sense, forgiven. Despite what others may think of her, no matter what her past, no matter if her reputation may linger, Jesus assures her that her sins have been forgiven by God. Look at how the guests react to all this in verse 49. And those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? The people are surprised. They're shocked maybe even a little bit offended. Who does this man think he is to pronounce her sins forgiven? And that's a great question. That's the right question. I think it's the question Jesus wanted them to ask. He was displaying something of his authority. His divine prerogative is to forgive sins because he is fully God. Only God has the authority to forgive sin because it is God's law that we've broken. It's his holiness That we have violated. It's his authority that we've rebelled against. It's his love that you and I have spurned by our sin. It's his purposes that we've rejected. It's his glory, Paul tells the Romans, that we have fallen short of. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. David recognized this in Psalm 51. He says, Against you, You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Only God can forgive sin. Maybe I can illustrate it this way. Imagine that you got a notice in the mail this past week that said that there had been an error over the last five years with your taxes. And you actually owe about $35,000. And the IRS expects you to pay. If I were to walk into your home and say, do not worry. The debt that you owe the federal government has been forgiven. You would say, well, who are you, J.D.? Do you have the authority to forgive my debt? Because that's great that you're saying that, but those guys are going to come get me if I don't pay this off, right? Only the IRS can tell you you don't have to pay because they're the ones with the authority. That's what these people were wrestling, wrestling with. Who is this who forgives sins? Because only God can forgive sin. Because it's God we've sinned against, it's his forgiveness that we need. For anyone else to pronounce forgiveness of sin would be presumptuous. It would even be blasphemous. Be putting yourself in the place of God. But Jesus is the Son of God who speaks for God rightly because he is God fully. This is a claim to divine authority. Jesus has authority to command the demons. He has authority over sickness and disease. He has authority over the created order, over death itself. He can tell a dead boy to come back to life And he has the authority to forgive sin. Then Jesus gives a final word to this woman in verse 50. He says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She's not saved because of her demonstration of love. She's not saved because of her acts of devotion. It's because of her faith. Because she believed the words of Jesus. She trusted him. She embraced his word as God's truth. And so the word of Christ assures her that now, because of that faith in his promise, 
her status is secure. She is no longer identified as a sinner. She's identified as a believer, as one who has been saved. Saved from sin, saved from judgment, saved from hell. And because of this, she can go in peace. He says, go in peace. She need not weep any longer. She need not feel ashamed of her outburst. She need not wonder if maybe Jesus wishes I wouldn't have come. Maybe he wishes that I wouldn't have cried all over his, his feet and wiped my tears and my snot off of him using my hair. Jesus, no, he, he's not bothered by that. He blesses her. Her repentance and faith is precious to him. She has the approval of her Lord and Savior, and she has the peace of God pronounced over her. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The simple point is that great grace from Jesus produces great love for Jesus. So what are the implications that we are to draw from this story? Well, in the time that remains, I'd like to pull out five implications, five truths that need to be believed and received and brought to bear in our lives. And the number one is this. Great sinners can be forgiven by Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there is no one that is beyond the reach of God's grace? And that Jesus has the authority and the power to forgive all who come to him by faith? Great sinners can be forgiven by Jesus. I remember talking to a, a guy my age. This is a few years ago. Long story. I was doing one of those um, lab rat things where you go and, and, uh, and they test different, like a clinical trial where they test drugs on you. I needed some money at the time. So I was there, and there was another guy there doing the same thing. Part of the reason I went and did it was I thought, this will be interesting to hang out with a few different people for a couple days and this guy had served in the military. He had served um, special forces. This is his story, whether it's true or not. Um, said he had been a sniper in Afghanistan. And he said, I've done things, and I don't think God can forgive me. He said, some of the orders I was given were wrong, and I shouldn't have followed them. And I did it even though I knew it was wrong. And I don't think God could ever forgive me. And he was deeply emotional about this. He felt like he was beyond the reach of God's grace. He said, I've done too much. Maybe some of you feel that way. You say, you know, my sins aren't just the garden variety kind. I've done too much. I don't know if I can truly be forgiven by Jesus. Listen, Jesus has the power and the authority to forgive sin. His death on the cross is sufficient to atone for all of our wicked deeds. In Acts chapter 10, verse 43 Peter is preaching, and he says, To him, to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Peter preaches the gospel. He says, everyone, no exceptions, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. In Acts chapter 13, verse 38, Paul is preaching, and he says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, preaching about Jesus, Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Paul says you can't achieve forgiveness through keeping the law, but everyone who believes in Jesus is free, free from the penalty of sin and death. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 says, in him 
We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. The forgiveness that you and I enjoy, if you're a believer in Christ, is a forgiveness that comes from the riches of God's grace. Do you really think that God's grace is limited? That he only has a finite amount? That he's worried about running out the way that some of you may have been worried about running out of toilet paper a few years ago? Like we have this small little stash in the closet, and once that's gone, then, well, we're out. God's grace isn't like that. It is infinite. It is unending because God is infinite. And that grace is the expression of his power and his love. Paul says, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, and this is according to the riches of his grace. Jesus is able to forgive. Great sinners can be forgiven by Christ. And this forgiveness, friends, can only come from Christ. I can't forgive you. I'm not a priest. And by the way, no priests can forgive you either. I've heard other people say, well, the reason you struggle with guilt and shame is you just need to forgive yourself. But listen, nowhere in Scripture are we ever commanded to forgive ourselves. Nowhere in Scripture are we ever told that our forgiveness of ourselves matters for anything. You know what we're told in Scripture? That it's through believing in Christ that we receive forgiveness. And it's only through his forgiveness that we can receive that blessing. Go in peace. You need to be forgiven by God, and this comes only through Christ, because Christ purchases that forgiveness at the cross through the shedding of his blood. Great sinners can be forgiven by Christ. That's number one implication. Number two, forgiveness is a gift of grace that is granted through faith. It is a gift of grace. It's not earned, it's given. And it is granted through faith. It is through laying hold of the promises of Christ, grabbing onto those words and believing them. That is how that grace is communicated to us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, By grace you have been saved through faith. So grace is the power. Grace is what makes it happen. And the instrument is faith. It is given to us through faith. By grace you have been saved through faith. And Paul comments, he says, This is not your own doing. This salvation, this gracious change that takes place in you, it's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's a gift. It is grace. It's not the result of works so that no one may boast. You know what would happen if this woman had earned her forgiveness by weeping and washing his feet and anointing him, him, him with that ointment? You know who would get the credit for her salvation? She would. If it was because of her good works that she had earned Christ's approval, then she would be able to take the credit for her forgiveness. But Paul says... That this salvation we receive, this grace we receive is not our own doing. It's a gift. It's not the result of works so that no one may boast. God gets all the glory for our salvation. He gets all the credit for the forgiveness and the life and the peace that we receive in the gospel. Titus 3 verse 4 says, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified or declared righteous, declared forgiven, 
justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Friends, throughout Scripture, the clear and consistent teaching is that forgiveness is a gift of grace that is granted to us through faith. It is not earned or deserved. It is given. And this forgiveness comes very simply to those who repent and believe. It comes to those who repent and believe. It does not come to those who refuse to repent of their sins and refuse to believe in Jesus. You have to recognize that you're a great sinner. You have to recognize before receiving this forgiveness that you owe an impossible debt to God. And this this situation that we find ourselves in, this problem of our debt that is impossible to pay and the gravity of our sin against a holy God, that ought to produce in us a godly grief like this woman. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says that godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. There is a godly sorrow that, that ought to settle upon our souls when we consider the gravity of our sin against God. James chapter 4, verse 8, speaks about this sorrow and this godly grief, this repentance. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. There's the invitation. But what does this drawing near require? He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. As we draw near to God, it requires humility. It requires that we we recognize the, the awfulness of our sin and that we be broken, emotionally, spiritually broken. Listen, if your sin seems small to you, if you've never experienced that conviction of the Holy Spirit, if you've never experienced the truth of God piercing through to your heart and and pushing you towards confession, pushing you to seek God's mercy, then you're not ready to receive God's forgiveness. This forgiveness comes to those who repent. Repentance is an essential mark of saving faith. This woman's faith has saved her. Part of the evidence of that faith, this saving faith, was that she was broken over her sin. Acts 3.19 says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Acts 8.22 says, Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Acts 17.30 says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. This repentance is a crucial mark of saving faith. Forgiveness is a gift of grace. It's granted through faith. But this faith, this genuine faith, is marked by repentance. There's a third implication. Forgiveness of sin, number three, results in peace. This is good news. Forgiveness of sin results in peace. He says to this woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The peace that we find in the gospel is an eternal, objective peace with God. 
It's not just a feeling of peace. It is actual peace. It means there is no longer any hostility, any enmity, any separation, any disapproval between us and God. It is his stamp of approval on us and acceptance. It is an objective and eternal peace with God. And this objective, eternal peace, you know what it produces? You know what it results in? It results in that internal, subjective feeling of peace that we so desperately want. Sometimes the, re- the reason that we don't feel at peace is because maybe we don't have the peace of God. The peace of God that comes from the comfort of his pronouncement in the gospel, that your faith has saved you, go in peace. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says that since we have been justified by faith, here's the result of that, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is a truth to be believed, that forgiveness of sin, being justified through faith, means we have peace with God. Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, no judgment. God does not pronounce you guilty any longer because you are in Christ Jesus through faith. This is a peace that the world is desperately searching for. The world seeks for peace in so many different places. Self-esteem, therapy, a successful career, finding human love and affection, going from one relationship to the next, trying to escape their problems and drown it in a bottle, whether it be alcohol or pills or drugs of some sort. The world is seeking for peace. Some of them are trying really hard to do a lot of good things, to to do all of these good works and be a good citizen and a good father or a good mother or or a faithful son or or a good citizen, whatever it may be, trying to be some sort of activist to change the world for the better and solve poverty and fix everything because they think maybe if I can do enough good, that will give me a sense of peace. Maybe that will answer this gnawing sense of guilt and and conviction that I feel for my sin. But listen, the only place this peace can be found is in Christ. It's only in Christ. Forgiveness of sin, that is what brings us peace with God, objective peace, which therefore allows us to enjoy that subjective feeling of peace, knowing our standing before God. A fourth implication, love for Jesus must be expressed. Love for Jesus Christ is to be expressed. The love of this woman was very evident. We see it expressed in her emotions. We see it expressed, expressed in her actions. We see it expressed in her radical sacrifice, her, her acts of devotion to Christ as she pours the ointment on his feet. The love that she expressed for Jesus was intensely personal. She personally drew near to Jesus and directly sought to express her love to him. But it's also very public. It's something that was no secret. It was not subtle in any way. It was visible, highly visible to everyone who was there. Love for Jesus is to be expressed. So the question is, what is the state of your heart today towards Christ? Do you love Jesus? If you do, there will be evidences of that love. What is the evidence in your life that you love Christ? You might say, well, well, how do we evidence that? Because Jesus is no longer physically present. He's not going to lunch with anybody here, so I can't go minister to him that way. What does love for Jesus look like today? I think it looks like a few things. 
It looks love for Jesus, drawing near to him personally, means drawing near to him in his word. It means we desire to be near to him and to see his glory on the pages of scripture. We desire to abide in him, to commune with him. People who love Jesus want to know him, so they seek him. They seek him in the word. And anywhere where the word is being faithfully taught, they feast on that truth. Love for Jesus looks like love for the word, but it also it looks like love for his people. Jesus isn't physically here, but you know what is here today? Is the body of Christ. The bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. You know what Jesus said, the risen Jesus said to the Apostle Paul before he was converted? He confronts the Apostle Paul as, before he's an apostle. He's on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians, to lock up believers, throw them in jail. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting not my followers, not my friends, not my servants? Why are you persecuting me? You see, the way that we treat the body of Christ directly reflects our love towards Jesus himself. That's why the, the New Testament teaches us that this is the way that people will know that we are his disciples, if we have love for one another. It's the way that you love the people in this church. Followers of Jesus, that is the direct expression of your love for Jesus Christ. And if there is a deficiency in your love for people, a deficiency in your love for the collective bride of Christ, what that's saying is there's something lacking, something missing in your love for Jesus himself. Do you love the bride of Christ? Is that love expressed in service, in affection for others, in a righteous and humble kind of honor to what Jesus honors? Do you eagerly participate in the ministry of the church? Is your love evident? Is it costly? Is it sacrificial like the love of this woman? Or is your worship stale? Is your service lacking? Is your care for others weak? Listen, we are called to love the church not because the church is perfect, but because Jesus is. We're called to love the body of Christ, not because these people have met all our needs. No, the people will let you down. But Jesus has met our needs. And it's our expression of love for him that pushes us to love and serve and care for his bride. I think another way we show love for Christ is that we not only love his word and we love his people, but we love his purposes in the world. We honor Jesus by giving ourselves to his mission. What is it that's important to Jesus? That becomes important to me. But people who seek their own kingdom, people who are, are here in this world to advance their own glory, people who have their own priorities, their own agendas that are divorced from the priorities and the mission of Christ, that shows you who they really love. And it's not Christ. It's themselves. See, a lack of love for Christ it's going to expose something in us. And it exposes one of two things. If you recognize in yourself a significant lack of love for Christ, there's no evidence, then it can only mean one of two things. What it may mean is that your sins are still unforgiven. You can't love Jesus much because you've not yet been forgiven. And that's why there's no love for Christ in you. That's very possible today. The reason you have no love for his word, 
no love for his people, no love for his mission in the world, the reason why there's no visible evidence in your life is because you don't know Christ. You have not yet believed, and so you are still in your sins. You've not been freed from your debt to God. And what you need to do today is not start weeping harder and wiping the feet and, and find some ointment to dump out. What you need to do is believe. What you need to do is confess your sin and come before Christ and say, I am a great sinner who has a great need for forgiveness. It's possible that your lack of love for Christ exposes sins that are still unforgiven. But it may expose a second thing. It may expose that your sins are just highly underestimated. The reason that you don't have an overwhelming sense of gratitude for the forgiveness of Christ is you think your sins are probably not as bad as most other people's. You think, you know what? I'm probably not so much the 500 denarii group. I'm more in the 50. I'm more in the 50 denarii group. Charles Spurgeon, famous preacher, centuries ago, wrote this. Are you certain you are to be reckoned among the 50 denarii debtors? Remember that we must always judge sin not merely by its outward appearance, but by the motives and character of the person committing it, and also by the circumstances under which the offense was perpetrated. A sin committed against light and knowledge is far worse than a sin of ignorance. It may be that some of those on whom we have looked down on as owing God 500 denarii, may have been without the light that we have had. Perhaps most of them never had the privileges we have enjoyed. Did not our godly mothers pray over us from our birth? Did not our anxious fathers diligently instruct us in the way of salvation? One may have read the Bible and have a tolerably clear notion of what is right and what is wrong, so he has sinned in the light. He has sinned knowing it to be sin. Therefore, may our little sins, as we think them to be, not really be more heinous in the sight of God than those apparently greater sins that others have committed without the same degree of light and knowledge that we have had. Spurgeon presses us to say, listen, maybe you grew up in the church. Maybe you've known these things since you were a child. And there's no big, famous, you know, you know, 500 denarii sins on your track record. But the sins you have committed, you knew better. You knew what God expected. You had a greater vision of God's holiness and his perfections, and you still did it anyway. And that makes it worse than the person who's sinning and doesn't even know they're sinning because they're lost and blind. He challenges us to think deeply about the weight of our sins. We often think of our sins as our violations of God's law, the sins of commission, doing things we're not supposed to. But consider the, the, the weight of our sins when we think about all the things we should do that we never have. Pastor John Piper writes this. I've probably shared this before. He says, what is sin? It's the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the promises of God not relied upon, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved, that is sin. 
Are you in the 500 denarii group yet? We need to be. If there's a lack of love for Christ, it may be you've never been forgiven, but it also may be that you just have a very small estimation of your sin. And if that's the case, friend, you are not seeing clearly. Oh, that God would give us a greater sensitivity as we look into God's word to see the depth of our sin, not so that we can wallow in shame, not so that we can feel condemned, not so that we hate ourselves, but so that we can look upon the cross of Christ and marvel at the depth of his mercy and grace towards us so that we can join this woman in weeping and worshiping our Savior because we know how much he's done for us. Small thoughts of sin will only lead to small thoughts of Christ. Love for Jesus must be expressed. It must be expressed. Well, this story is left open-ended. We really don't know what Simon's reaction was, but I think there's some subtle hints that this experience that this man had made quite the impact on him. We see some clues in the text that he was listening to Jesus following the argument, and he was affirmed by Jesus that he was judging rightly. The people at the table seem to have a hard time with Christ's pronouncement of forgiveness, but Simon doesn't protest. And we have his name recorded for us, Simon the Pharisee, which seems to mean that perhaps this is a man who was known in the early church. They knew who this man was. I can't help but wonder if this experience was one that was instrumental for his salvation. You have to wonder if Simon heard that pronouncement of forgiveness, that blessing, go in peace, and he thought to himself, that's what I want. That's what I need as well. We don't know how Simon responded. The story is left open. I think the reason it's left open is so that every reader will find themselves saying, well, how will I respond? How will you respond to this story? Will you receive the grace of Jesus Christ in faith? Will you believe in him? Will you repent of your sin and, and respond to Christ, therefore, in love and worship and serve him out of the great love that springs up from your experience of his forgiveness? My prayer is that the great grace we have received from Jesus in this church would produce great love for Jesus, all for his eternal glory. Lord Jesus, it is impossible for us to understand the depth of your grace, the magnitude of our sin. And so I ask you this morning that you would help us, help us to see our sin rightly. And then, Lord, lest we be overwhelmed by grief, lest we be crushed with condemnation, help us to see the magnitude and glory of the cross. Help us to believe your promise of forgiveness that through faith we can have peace with God. Lord, for those who struggle with condemnation and guilt, those who know too well, all too well, the depth of their sin. I pray that you would strengthen their faith today to receive that blessing of Jesus. Your faith has saved you. You can now go in peace. And Lord, for those who may not feel the magnitude of sin, bring conviction. Lord, our desire is that we would love you as you so richly deserve. No amount of praise and worship and sacrifice could ever, ever come close to matching all that you have given us through the riches of your grace. Lord, fill us with wonder and gratitude today that we might love you more. Amen.